Monsters. Madness. And the world is not made of atoms. It is made of stories. Welcome to the Monsters, Madness, and Magic podcast. I am Justin, joined by my co-hosts Mitchell and Jacob. And this evening we have a very special guest with us, the mayor of Raven's End and master of the mortuary arts, Mr. Ryan Spindell, director of the Mortuary Collection. Ryan, how the hell are you? And I hope I didn't uh, butcher your last name. No, you did a good job. Thank you for pronouncing it right. Uh, I'm doing great. Thanks for having me. This is cool. Thank you. So you can hear if I'm wrong, but the Mortuary Collection is your first feature, right? Correct. Correct. Hell of a debut. Uh, <laughs> what uh, made you decide to finally take the plunge and go for the full feature? That's a good question. I think, uh, I, you know, I think all of us filmmakers, whether you, you start in shorts or go right to features, I think you eventually want to get to the big leagues. I mean, <clears throat> I hate the fact that shorts are considered not the big leagues because I think that as an art form, uh, short form cinema is uh really sorry about that is really um important and uh and special and i wish there was more of a a place where filmmakers could actually make a living making these kind of uh stories because i don't really think there's many places for them to be seen so i had done a a a ton of shorts sort of cutting my teeth and learning learning how to be a filmmaker but also just sort of loving that format and um i've been working on a few traditional features that were sort of at different stages within the Hollywood system, quote, unquote. And, uh, you know, all of them were sort of uh, going through these series of um, really depressing notes and uh, felt like I was losing sort of the grasp of what those projects were. And so I just sat down one day and I was like, what's the movie that I can write that I want to see the most? And uh, I've been watching a lot of Amicus films around that time. And this is in 2012, so this is quite a while ago. Um, And the anthology format was not really a thing at that point in time. And I was sort of kind of falling in love with the Amicus films all over again and thinking, um, you know, I just love for somebody to make another great horror anthology film with sort of a strong wraparound and interesting uh, tight stories that don't feel, you know, oftentimes there's like one great story and then a bunch of filler. Um, So that was sort of the genesis. And when I first wrote it, I I honestly remember thinking to myself, this movie will never get made. I'm just going to get it like out of my system and then move on. Um, But it was... uh, the little film that that could or couldn't one of the two depends on how you look at it considering it took about seven years to make um but it just sort of kept sort of chugging along and we ended up you know making it the babysitter murders is a separate short on your credits list and you have a a short called kirksdale which is also the asylum in the film Mm -hmm. is uh so kirksdale was my thesis film in film school 
And uh, then a lot of the films I make are horror and sort of tonally in the same world. So it's really easy to start connecting them all. So I kind of just pulled the name from Kirksdale and sort of dropped it into Raven's End. But um, The Babysitter Murders was actually part, originally part of the feature film. And uh, I had the script and I wanted to sort of make a proof of concept. So I pulled that short out of the feature in a Kickstarter and I made that first as a proof of concept and then sort of did the festival circuit and people saw it, and that's how I eventually found my way to getting a little bit more money to make the full film. Gotcha. That makes sense. That makes sense why it feels like it's right there in the film, like it fits everything like thematically and visually. So. Yeah, it's a tricky one too because um, <laughs> that film was, you know, clearly like a standout in in sort of just a contained sort of subversion of of, of what you would expect for a slasher movie, um, mm. and it was tricky to make that first um, outside of the feature because. As part of the feature, it was always designed to be the climax for the character. So it was always designed to be this sort of, you know, uh, nonstop action sequence after having watched the main character kind of progress through the entire feature film. So so that last short was kind of her big climax. And it was kind of a weird thing to take that out of the movie and then sort of release it, you know, on the festival circuit and kind of have the climax of your whole film just sort of floating around out there. But it was definitely the the short that was going to sort of have the most pop and sort of kind of mm-hmm. give us the best chances to get the rest of the money. So you yeah, oh, go ahead, Jacob. I, go ahead, go ahead, go ahead. I was just to say, you mentioned uh, Kirksdale was your thesis film in film school. Um, did you make horror shorts throughout film school? Because like, I'm in film school right now, so I was just mm-hmm. curious if that's what you did. I did, I did. I've always been uh, firmly in the horror world and not ashamed of it. Um, <clears throat> I went to school at FSU, which is uh, a really a really kick-ass film program. It's really small. There's, I think, 24 kids per class and it was um about 80 percent production based so almost the entire two years was just making movies almost no classes um but i do remember uh within the school because i was in the grad program and this and the grad program was a very hoity-toity program with sort of we had like one guy in our class that was a lawyer one that was uh, actually a rocket scientist we had a doctor we had all these people that had all these like really illustrious careers that had given up one thing to sort of go to film and uh, so within that context, everybody was making, you know, important films. And then I would sort of came along and I was like, and I want to make Sam Raimi style horror. And so I was kind of the, uh, the joke of the film school as the only person who wasn't taking it seriously. But the truth is, is I think I was maybe taking it uh, more seriously than most. I just happened to know exactly what I wanted to do from the start. Right. So you I mean, I think, I'm sorry. Oh, I just, I think horror is a very serious genre. I don't know. Like, I think it's, there's a lot of merit in horror. Like, um, it's weird. I, um, my film analysis professor, I got him like going on a whole tangent about horror and how important it is. Like just in the middle of class, I'm like, thank you. <laughs> yeah, I was, I was actually going to ask, but you kind of answered it uh, with that last answer. Is if you always wanted to make horror, because I know a lot of uh, film students and a lot of, of first-time directors typically make horror movies because it's the cheapest to manufacture and you typically get a higher return on it because again it's it's so cheap and easy to manufacture and i mean pretty much everybody loves horror movies but you you always want to do horror that wasn't something that you kind of did to kind of get the ball rolling no no not at all i'm a, i'm a horror fan through and through I, I i actually spent a good amount of my life uh, being scared shitless of horror and avoiding it at all costs <laughs> uh i don't know I, I had a bad experience with Elm street when i was super young and it just sort of turned me off of the genre and i think i kind of had this idea in my head that horror had to be one thing like when i was a kid i thought horror was 
you know, you know, teenagers being butchered in the woods. And, and I kind of like couldn't get that out of my brain. And I remember when I first saw, I think I was probably a freshman in high school and I saw uh, Evil Dead 2. And that was the first time that I saw that like the artistry that goes into the craft. Like I, I felt like I could see Sam Raimi kind of bleeding through every frame and I could tell that he was just going wild and having a great time doing it. And it, I was like, wow, horror can be like an art form. Horror can be this cinematic, horror can be this fun. And so that movie kind of led me down this path of exploring and really being attracted to horror films that were, you know, created by these auteur directors like Peter Jackson and uh, um, uh, Guillermo del Toro and, and these world buildings, artists who were like really kind of had this sort of special attention to every single aspect of the genre. Uh, and so that's kind of what sort of led me down the path. And, and also why I agree with what you said, Paul, that I think I'd argue that horror is the most cinematic uh, of all the genres when it comes to filmmaking and sort of technique and craft. Right. So the great and anthology... Oh, Jacob, sorry. Not Paul. Jacob, oh, no, sorry. It's, it's fine. <laughs> it's, yeah, I, was I was like, like did like... he say Paul? Uh, roll with it. Like, Paul? <laughs> I thought we had another guest in here. <laughs> Let me just ask you real quick. Do you know if any of the other students in your class have a movie starring Clancy Brown? <laughs> <laughs> no, but a, a friend of mine who a few classes above me made that movie Moonlight, so he's kind of... He's kind of winning at this point. Oh, oh uh, you're right on for one of my classes. So, <laughs> how did wild. you get Clancy Brown in on the whole deal? By the way, how'd that happen? Uh, it was sort of a, t- a two-part thing. The I think the most important part was that we had had made the proof of concept short, so we had something we could show people because you know not only is the horror anthology a tricky one to get going, but when you hand somebody a script and it's a script of five stories. Um, it's just not what people are used to. So it's hard for people to wrap their brain around. But what was nice is I could take this short. I could say, here's the script. And also, look, we've made 23 minutes of it right here. So you can see exactly what it's going to be. So that really sort of caught his interest. Um, and he agreed to meet with me. So I had to do one of those sort of uh, stressful meetings where you have to go meet one of your favorite actors of all time and, and pretend to not be uh, sort of fanning out about them and, and try to play it cool. Go through it um, here all the time. Yeah, <laughs> I, know, I, know. I know. And you know for a fact that like the best thing you can do is pretend you don't care, but it's so hard not yeah. to care when these yep. people have been part of your lives. For so you want to freak out, be like, you got to be the cool guy. Be like, I don't give a shit. I don't even care. That's right. That's right. That's my biggest flaw is I get too excited about it. I need to chill out more. I think people would trust me more with their money. Um, but yeah, no, and, and he was like, we, we got along really quickly. He's such an easygoing guy. I, I've joked before that he feels like he doesn't feel like an actor at all. I feel like he should be living on a ranch, like making furniture in Wyoming or something. That's that's what his personality mm-hmm. sort of dictates. Um, he's just not actory in, in, in the ways that are, you know. He's not an negative. asshole. He's not an asshole. He's not a diva. He's like, you know, he's worked with the best directors ever in the history of, of the world. And he still has like no no pretentiousness whatsoever. And our, our project was small. So we didn't have trailers. We didn't have makeup rooms. We didn't have fancy catering. Uh, and he loved it. I, I actually think that one of the things that he was really attracted to was the fact that we were trying to pull off such an ambitious movie um, with such a small amount of money. And I think he sort of saw kind of a kindred spirit in these like mm-hmm. artists. They're just like, we're going to do whatever it takes to make this thing awesome, mm-hmm. um, which is really special and kind of what you need on a movie like this if you want to get an actor like that. Right. And it probably takes him back, you know, to maybe some earlier days in his career when he was just getting started, maybe. That's um, true. So the great anthologies, they do masterful jobs of like wrapping up the meta and a nice bundle, dropping bits of world building and foreshadowing all throughout and 
the mortuary collection does a great job of that. It's you can tell there's so much more there than you're seeing. So it's just the tip of the iceberg. Uh, I was, just tell us more about Raven's End. It seems like it'd be a great place for a Twilight Zone type series or something. I agree. I agree. Can we scream that from the rooftops and make that happen? Yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> I think it's kind of one of the nice things about being really enamored with this one specific type of horror in that almost every project I've done is somehow like connected within this world. Um, Raven's End exists until I made the Mortuary Collection, but Kirksdale did prior. Um, even all the products and all the movies I've made are this, uh, this fictional company called Finkelman's, PQ Finkelman's. Um, so this hat I'm wearing is actually from a, a, this short I made with Sam Raimi last year, um, wow. which is like a, a tools company. So I've, I've managed to find a way to like cram the tendrils of Raven's End into sort of every project I've done, no matter <laughs> whether it's my own or not. Um, so yeah, I mean, Raven's End did, you know, because I started with sort of a group of shorts that I had in mind and I kind of whittled it down to my favorites, and because I've been writing shorts ever since, because it's just something I do for fun, um, there are clues to several more shorts already sort of baked into the feature film, like through the newspapers, through the magnets on the fridge, through the advertising in the town, uh, even on the news, some of the stuff that the sort of newscaster says. Um, so I think that as I was, you know, creating the world of Raven's End, specifically with the design elements, uh, I started planting the seeds for all of those feature stories early. Um, just because that's such a fun thing to to look back on and find those little Easter eggs. Definitely. Yeah, I noticed a lot of those Easter eggs when I was watching it the first time. I'm like, oh, that in the newspaper, is that going to be a story in this? And like, it wasn't, but I'm like, oh, I want to see that story though. <laughs> yeah, I wish there was more, like a few different shots of those newspapers because there are so many cool stories in those newspapers. Uh, just like little fragments from stories in the past or stories that will be that, uh, I don't know. I, I love that kind of stuff. And and the, the sad thing is, is that, when you're making a, a movie like this at, at this sort of small budget, um, the first thing that ends up going are those connective tissues because we did shoot this thing kind of piece by piece over the course of two years. So like stupid little things happen. Like, you know, you're like, um, oh, let's have this one character from this, other, this one story kind of show up for like two shots uh, as this character drives by. And this will sort of connect and we'll see like a little clue. And then you get to production and you're like, hey, can we, fly can we get actor a out here for these two shots and they're like well if you want to you have to fly him out that's to be business class then you have to play him per diem then you have to get him a hotel room then you have to get him a car then you have to pay for uh their sad fees then you have to pay them so it was like four thousand dollars every time you wanted to get an actor to to oregon to like shoot a shot and so wow. you're like well i guess i guess we're losing all of that connective <laughs> tissue and so about 99% of the connective tissue kind of went away in the process of production. And then once we got to post, we did all these sort of little tricks and little uh, camera pickups and stuff to try to like wedge as many as possible back in. But you could definitely see that like if you had sort of a reasonable budget or like a, a reasonable schedule with sort of access to everybody, you could make something sort of really interconnected and more pulp fictiony. I don't know what your budget was for the film, but whatever it was, you did a damn good job with yeah. it because it looks it looks like you had a huge budget. <laughs> yeah, we were discussing that. We watched it. Justin and I watched it yesterday, and that's one of the things we were discussing because you couldn't find a budget online, mm -hmm. but everything looked. I mean, the effects were good. It was phenomenally shot. I mean, the set was just great. So, I mean, whatever you guys had, you definitely squeezed every fucking little bit of juice out of it that you could that shows. <laughs> no, we, we really did. It's, it's sort of a byproduct of having made so many shorts and having – kind of created this system in which you really can put hyper-focused detail into every single element because you sort of have the time and freedom to do it. 
the problem is that we hadn't anticipated was, which is dumb because we should have anticipated it, was like every short we make takes about a year, right? So you have, you know, you shoot for three or four days, but like you have this time to like, oh, let's get a pickup of uh, the night getting stuck in the floor. Let's, uh, we can fix this in editing and let's uh, have this, you know, use a 5D and shoot this one extra shot. So we did that same thing, but we did it five times over with the feature. And that went from, you know, that was like one year's worth of work on a traditional short sort of schedule kind of all crammed together into, you know, five at once. And so for two years, it felt like we were never done shooting. For two years, it was like, okay, my friend's son's available for an hour tomorrow. Let's put the, let's get his, mon the monster hands on him so he can sort of do the insert shot of the, of the undead child grabbing the tooth for this one thing and we'll shoot it in our living room. And it was kind of that for two years to kind of get that sort of low level of detail. It's not something I would recommend if you have anything else going for you in your life. <laughs> <laughs> the uh were, was there a lot of were you guys on on a sets a lot was there a lot of on on location shooting or it was, it, it, was a, <laughs> it was everything it was everything you can imagine <laughs> we did we shot um almost all of the interiors on location in los angeles so we just found old uh abandoned houses and basically we would we would sort of triple use them so we'd say the kitchen will be the doctor's mm -hmm. office and the bedroom will be the living room and the bedroom and the dining room and so we just needed the cool molding and the cool walls and we just painted and, and retrofitted everything to work and then we ended up going to oregon uh to astoria oregon which is where they shot the goonies and we shot all the exterior shots and then all of the stuff with uh sam and monty in the mortuary in this big old sort of museum they have but even the museum and it was uh it's the it's the tricky thing about making a movie that kind of is like use anything as is like hairstyles makeup uh, costumes that can't look too crisp they have to look aged vehicles backgrounds like we would have you know we had some a local car club come in and donate some of their cars and we would put people in costumes and we'd have them sort of walk a whole crew shooting it and so we'd get everything together and we'd be like action and the kid would ride by in the bike and the, the the extras would cross and the vintage cars would be there and then someone would just drive through with like a dump truck or something and be like, ah, can you be back to square one and and it was like it was it was very uh it was very old school but but in the way that that i sort of it's those moments that kind of remind me why i do it because that's the stuff that like drew me to the the art form in the first place and uh walk in and do it because i've never <laughs> done that <either. laughs> no not in los angeles no even in los angeles and in houses a thousand that's wow. right okay yeah. wow so when you made the short, uh, The Babysitter Murders, did you already know that uh, Sam, Sam was her name? In, mm -hmm. Did you know mm -hmm. the dynamic between Sam and Montgomery already? I knew that kind of came, well, I knew half of it. I knew that Sam was going to um, arrive at the mortuary and be sort of told the stories. And I knew the two of them were going to be um, debating on what, on the sort of merits of what makes a good story. So I, I had that much uh in the can but the thing that i was struggling with at first was because i've seen a ton of anthology movies and I, you know i guess a lot of people haven't seen them but i was sort of going into making this as if somebody who had seen a lot and i was like okay well if you're watching an anthology movie and somebody arrives at a creepy place and they're being told stories you know where it's going to go like you know, you know the tropes you know how you might not know how it's going to happen but you know where it's going to happen or, or what's going to happen essentially um, so there's a lot of work put into trying to kind of evolve the wraparound into something a little bit more than just a uh, person goes into house, person gets told stories, person gets come up. And, um, 
And then the whole ending sort of evolved about halfway through the pre-production process and then kind of dictated some of the sort of other elements that uh, that make it play out. But but we had endless conversations about just the dumbest things. Like like we talked about every single detail in this movie to death, just from <laughs> what Montgomery's backstory was, how he feels at any given point, any given time. Like if one line is going to make the audience push them towards Sam, is one going to push them towards Monty? Does she seem evil here? Does she seem good here? Like the amount of detail we went into discussing each component of this, which you would never notice watching it, because I think on the surface it just feels like kind of a fun, spooky popcorn movie. Um, but there really is some sort of interesting things happening beneath the surface that I think uh, you really only pick up if you watch it multiple times, which is kind of the type of movies I love the most are the movies that you can rewatch and find new discoveries along the way. Right. What are some of your favorite anthologies? Oh man. Um, to be, so for me, if it has, if there's one good story, I love it. Uh, I'm already in. So like I'll even defend creep show too, because the raft is one of my favorite uh, <laughs> yeah. shorts of all time. Um, but I love uh, Asylum, which is an amicus one because it has a, um, a really killer wraparound story uh, that sort of ties everything together in an interesting way. Have you guys seen that one? I have not seen that one. I have not. Oh, it's great. So the, the wraparound story is essentially uh, a doctor shows up at this sort of mental hospital and he arrives to sort of as the new physician attending. And uh, one of the orderlies says, the prior doctor who, who ran this place went insane and now he's a patient. So I'm going to introduce you to five different uh, patients and tell you their stories. And at the end, you have to tell me which one of them was your predecessor. Um, so you go from like room to room and kind of this like Silence of the Lambs-esque, like, you know, maximum security wing. And in each one, you kind of go into the individual stories. And it's just really cool. It's something that for me is, um, I don't need a great wraparound to love an anthology, um, but it's the thing that sort of, to me, like elevates it into you know, hero status as opposed to yeah. just a collection of short stories. There's really not, there's not much wraparound in creep show. There's uh, one of my favorite anthologies is it's not necessarily great, but you know, I grew up watching it as dead time stories and there's, yeah. absolute, there's no wraparound in that one. It's just straight shorts. And that's what sets the mortuary collection apart. I think is you could just tell that these aren't just three individual stories. There's a lot going on here. Yeah. Uh, Tales from the dark side also has a pretty good wraparound story. Although um, I'd say it's 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 pretty basic. I, I think you're right about Creepshow. Creepshow is is you know that's the that's the staple. That's the one that I've watched the most without a doubt, mm. and I, I love it with all my heart. Um, but I like I'll go to uh, I'll debate people on how much of that movie is fantastic and how much is through the nostalgia lens because yeah, there's there's a lot of stuff in that movie. There's a couple of stories that are kind of the same story twice. It's mm-hmm. uh, there's not really a wraparound. There's there's things about it that I would change if I had the choice not not to say that it's still not the greatest anthology ever I still will agree with that but um I like to debate people on that one because people have sort of had this such a they hold it in such high regard that they're sort of unable to right. see I think some of the the weaknesses nostalgia glasses for you man they'll do that they will I'm guilty I'm guilty <laughs> of it myself it happens actually, all the time I promoted mortuary collection as the best anthology since creep show <laughs> this, yeah, this is true he did <laughs> oh thank you thank you <laughs> and like i said this is your first feature and it's a i'd say it's a roaring success what's your biggest takeaway from the experience oh man i think if you're going to make your first feature don't make five movies <laughs> just stick to the one <laughs> stick to the one stick to the one i think if you can do if you can get a small cast and a cool location and, have, and a really fun story and just make something simple that works for people 
your likelihood of success is so much higher than setting yourself up to tell five tales, each tale giving you something different for people to attack if they don't like it. And inevitably, if you are making something that is a, uh, that's sort of a addressing all these different subgenres, you're just going to inevitably sort of, some are going to land for people and some are not. So it's, it's interesting because we started out thinking, let's do something for everyone. So there's at least one thing people love, but like that also means if you sort of lean into that, that also means that those people that really gravitate towards one thing are going to like really dislike another. Mm-hmm. And the thing that's been really interesting about this one, um, which ones people like the best. Um, and I think I take some solitude in that because I, 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 my biggest fear was that, you know, one or two of them would just be duds or filler or feel like filler uh, episodes within the mm-hmm. overall context. All of them is, uh, is something. That's cool. Yeah. I, I like all of them. That's funny that you say that because I'm thinking of the shorts now and I'd say I, I really can't pick a favorite because the tactic of having Sam kind of break down the story and after the story is very, it's very, it's used very well. It works. It's just like afterwards. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, I, those were critiques I had myself when I, when I, five minutes long is basically a silent film. I had that story kind of circling around in my brain and I loved it for just a simple Lovecraftian story, not complicated, not tricky, just a straightforward monster movie. Mm-hmm. Um, and when I started writing it into the movie, I remember thinking like, well, I can't put this in the movie because it's not, it doesn't have a big twist. It doesn't have like this, an ironic comeuppance. It doesn't have all these other sort of story components that the other ones had. And then I was like, oh, but it's interesting if I just have Sam try a little bit harder and sort of push the stories to evolve as the story evolves. So, um, Ultimately, it sort of worked out, or, or for my for my taste, it worked out. Some people might argue, um, but but also anthologies always tend to kind of have the same length segments. So it was kind of fun to break up break up that expectation, and sort of give people a little bit more of a of a mixed bag of tricks. So you were sort of using Sam as your directorial mouthpiece. Yeah, well, <laughs> and I think I, I think Sam and and uh, Monty are basically two sides of my. I think right. Monty. He's my he's my love for the classics. He's my love for the morality tales of the past and sort of that aesthetic and that sort of style of storytelling. And then Sam is is sort of my love for sort of modern revisionist horror or sort of horror that subverts expectations or sort of twists things on on their end. And um, I think that where my my style of filmmaking kind of you know is at its best is when the two of them are kind of working hand in hand yes sir you mentioned the l word uh lovecraftian is one of our favorite words around here and there's a <laughs> lot of there's a lot of pulp era influence in the mortuary collection you got you know the gothic aesthetic you got some stephen king stuff mm-hmm. i saw an interview where you said you're a big fan of short fiction i am myself and ray bradbury so Love what are some of your favorite shorts you know what's what's your favorite radbury stuff Oh, my favorite uh, Ray Bradbury book is The October Country, without yeah. a doubt. I think that's my favorite book uh, of all time. Um, but I'm a, I'm a huge fan of Stephen King's shorts, as we all are, especially from the uh, the crazier days, the crazy co- cocaine days. The, the good Bachman stuff. Shift. The Bachman <laughs> days. <laughs> yeah, the Bachman <laughs> days, exactly, exactly. <laughs> um, but I also love, uh, I'm also a huge fan of Richard Matheson, mm. and uh, I have a whole collection um of Richard Matheson stories. Do you guys know who Richard Matheson is? That name, of course, rings a bell, but I can't. I can't. I'm familiar, but I haven't, I haven't read. Yeah, I, I know who Richard Matheson is. Okay, cool. <laughs> so, yeah, I am Legend, well, he, and um, oh, okay, yeah, yeah the last on Earth. He wrote a bunch of Twilight Zone episodes too. Yeah, sixteen so. episodes. Okay, yeah. all right. He did. He's he's. I would say he's the master of the uh, the big ironic twist ending. Um, before mm-hmm. that was uh, real commonplace. If you read his books of short stories. 
you'll sort of read these setups where it's like a young couple on their honeymoon driving through the desert, stop at a creepy gas station. And you're like, geez, buddy, could you be any more cliche? And then you look at the date and it's like 1943. You, know, uh-huh. you, you were the cliche. Cliches. All right. <laughs> My apologies. Yeah, it's wild that um, Evil Dead 2 is kind of what turned your opinion on horror movies because it's basically the same with me. But I noticed you... um worked with Sam Raimi on uh, 50 States of Fright recently. How, how was that? It was awesome. It was awesome. It was, you know, for the short-lived Quibi, which was unfortunate because uh, they were sort of giving these sort of amazing uh, iconic producers like Sam Raimi this ability to just reach out to filmmakers and let them sort of make shorts. So mm-hmm. essentially, I think there was maybe eight of us um, all wrote and directed and we got to fly up to Vancouver and we got to make shorts with Sam Raimi. It was basically... A dream come true and I could probably die happy now uh, and it was kind of the perfect thing after the, the the mortuary collection too because the mortuary collection I was writing and, and directing and producing and sometimes shooting and sometimes uh, doing art department and kind of wearing a, a billion different hats and sort of not sleeping and being stressed all the time and then I got to sort of go to Vancouver and work with like a real legit like huge crew of people that came together just to make these like weird little horror shorts that we had sort of written so it was cool i don't know if you guys got to see any of them but um they were uh i think they only made two seasons and i think they were still getting their sea legs but even the seasons and the, and the content that they made already i think it was on track to be one of the most interesting horror it, anthology collection series out is there. everything on quibi like lost now basically i, I don't know that's a good question that's okay. terrible if it is yeah that's a good question i i think I think there may be futures for the, I think these shows are going to go somewhere else. I'm not sure how that works with the Quibi structure and, and who owns what, but I know that um, I had written two episodes of uh, 50 States season three. Um, mm-hmm. And I know that they're sort of looking for a new home for it. So ideally it'll sort of find a place that's a, a little bit easier for people to get behind. Cause I, I definitely think it's worth checking out the story. Some of them are awesome. I just saw the, um, the Beck and Woods one uh, from season two that the guys who did a quiet place. And it's it looks huge. I can't believe how big it looks for a short film. It's really cool. That's a shame if all that stuff's lost because I was just we were just talking before you entered the room that we were contacted by Quibi for Halloween coverage, and I was looking forward to all that stuff. Never heard back from them, and now I know why. Everybody knows why. So yeah, yeah. Down right that's before rough. Halloween. <laughs> Still waiting on that Halloween coverage, Quibi. But, uh... <laughs> Maybe next year. <laughs> I like the idea of anthologies being used um, for, like, upcoming filmmakers, especially. Me too. Yeah. That's, like, something I would just love to have happen to me. Like, somebody's like, oh, shoot for my anthology. I'm like, (laughs) yeah, yeah, yeah. They're great for, um, yeah, they are great ways to showcase talent. I also think it'd be really cool if, like, Jason Blum were to sort of do, like, the Pixar thing where he Mm -hmm. makes one short with every movie. So he just, every feature film that comes out, he gets like one short director to write and direct something. Um, and they put them together. So you get sort of, you know, two for one, but also it would be such a great place to give people an opportunity to, to make something and have it seen on a larger scale. Yeah, that's a really... There's a lot of dark humor in this movie. Is that your natural storytelling inclination is to throw some humor in there? Yeah, I mean, I, I don't know if this comes from, again, this sort of idea of, of being scared of horror for so long and then coming to it through movies like... <laughs> Dead Alive and Evil Dead 2. Oh, yeah. I think I think those movies were like the gateway films that got me into it. And, and Creepshow, for sure, was also mm-hmm. sort of a gateway film. And because those movies became my staples for the genre, um, and because I think I just am drawn to humor as a person, 
um, it's hard for me to write uh, to write without sort of burying those jokes in. But mm-hmm. I think like I'd love to make a movie that's not uh, that has no humor in it. Um, but I just don't know if I'm drawn to that as a writer. Right. Um. So I'm sure everyone's asking about it when it's thinking about it in here. When it comes to dark humor, um, you have the exploding dick. Yeah. <laughs> yeah we got to We got to get on that somehow. We've been holding off as long as we can. <laughs> um, how did you do that? And did you come up with that? Like, yeah. How did you come up with that? That's the better question. <laughs> well, I just went on Craigslist and I tr- found somebody who wanted to. Uh, explode their dick on camera and it just sort of worked out there's actually a lot of people who are sort of excited about it so the Sad first three guys that is, that is perfectly believable <laughs> <laughs> oh man that was out of focus we're gonna have to find somebody else thanks for coming in though. <laughs> um yeah that was uh we worked with this awesome company called studio adi this special effects company uh in la they are amazing they did um tremors and uh Starship Troopers, and they designed Pennywise for the new It movies, and they're they're way out of our league. But again, we had the short to show them, and they and they really liked what we were doing, and they didn't like our budget very much, but uh, they were sort of passionate about the material, and so they agreed to repurpose a bunch of um, old effects to sort of help fill in the gaps, and then create all the custom effects from scratch, because the movie has a lot of uh, a lot of practical effects in it. And so the penis one was uh, interestingly, they had made a movie. I can't remember what it's called. But they had made a movie like a couple of months before I came in to meet with them that that required them to make like 36 like realistic prosthetic dicks. So they had been like in the dick department in a dick game for like quite some time when I showed up. Essentially, they were manufacturing dildos at that point. <laughs> exactly, exactly. But I do remember having this surreal moment there because they have this kind of fancy boardroom where you where they take meetings, which is weird because the whole rest of it is just like uh, liquid latex and machinery and shops and old rubber puppets and stuff. But they have one fancy meeting room, I guess, where they take to impress the clients. And I remember there's like five grown men, and we were talking for about an hour about how we're going to make a dick explode on the screen. And I just stopped the meeting and I was like, how crazy is it that we get paid to sit in this fancy boardroom and talk about exploding dicks as adults? So that was, that was dream. That's the actual dream. Yeah. Yeah. That is the dream. That's how I knew I'd arrived. So the the exploding penis was practical. It wasn't, uh, wasn't CG. It was practical. Basically it was, um, the legs that you see are, aren't even uh, Jacob Elordi's legs. Those are actually my producer's legs because we did that uh, separately in the effects shop. And it's basically a prosthetic penis that we had several different options for how to make this explode. Like one was we had a monster hand that we kind of crammed through. Um, but that kept like making sort of weird patterns that didn't quite sell on camera. And what we ended up doing was um, attaching a, a tube full of blood to it. Uh, and I actually had the other end, and then on action, I would just basically blow into the penis, and it would fill up with blood and, and swell up, and that's how we pulled that effect off. Now, so you, you blew the dick up. I blew the dick up, personally, yeah. <laughs> there we go. Wow. Correct me if I'm wrong, ADI, that was the company that, um, they were going to do the special effects for the Thing prequel, correct? And they did the Spider-Man yes. movies. Okay, so you were you were in good hands then. Yes, they did that amazing, they released that amazing video of all the thing special effects, the practical effects that ended oh, up. Dude, they were so yeah, good. They, that, that made me so, so mad because The Thing was is my absolute favorite horror film. And then when I found out about the sequel, I went and watched it. And I was like, the effects in this movie are 30 years newer and look horrible. <laughs> I, it's such an interesting thing, too, because you know that, you know, there was clearly uh, some, the director clearly was pushing 
to match at least the best that they could the practical effects of the original and so they put the money and the time and they hired the company and they made all of that effects but ultimately once they were in the movie i think the producers saw it and they said "Mm, not quite what we're looking for let's go and redo it all and it just goes to show that you know you never know whose fault it is that sort of the movie ends up the way it is. But I'd, I'd love to see the movie without any of that. Yeah, I would too. Yeah. I, think I, I think I read somewhere that like when the producers was like, oh, I don't like that you have to shoot this practical effect from this angle. Let's move it so we can do a full-on angle or something like that. And it's like... That, okay. that could very well be true. They, I'm, I'm actually curious. I talked to them a little bit about it, but they may not have even shot with this awesome thing. Maybe that's why they have all that cool footage in the shop, but they don't have it like actually being executed. Right. But it is a, it is a crazy time suck. And that's the thing you, you know how like on independent films, you either have kind of bad effects or Mm -hmm. you have a movie that was made by an effects house and it's like just effects that are great, but there's not much movie there. (laughs) Mm -hmm. And you realize that's because the effects, like they, even the small, even in a small effect of just like some blood, like spattering at someone's face, just takes all this ridiculous time when you're kind of moving through your day and you're just trying, struggling to get those like, pages in and get those beats and then suddenly it's like okay let's get the pipe let's get the tube in let's get the air compressor let's get three effects people let's cover everything with blankets let's cover all the lights it ends up taking like 45 minutes to get something super simple and if you don't get it like right. the first one or two tries you're like oh, i don't know we gotta get the movie and you kind of like gets pushed aside <laughs> so it takes like a real weird intense discipline to to make sure you get the effects the best you can without sacrificing the movie, but also not like spending an entire day on an effect and, and not having any movie at all other than the movie. Yeah, yeah. I recently re- completely re-approached a student film for my one of my classes because like, I was going to do um, effects for it. And then I was like, it's going to take too fucking long and I'm going to be so frustrated with it. So I'm just going to do a simple story and like, <laughs> you know, it's still a horror story, but it's different. And um, I think it turned out okay. It was like, there's still parts of it that I'm like frustrated with that I got to cut, but it's, you know, <laughs> less frustrated yeah. than, oh, is it is it right? Is it right? The effect? <laughs> well, you know what I think you can do sometimes if you are if you have a really small budget and you're making a short? Um, what I suggest doing is Hello? finding Ooh. one. Did you lose me? Oh, no, you're, you're still there, Justin. He might be dropping out. Oh, there he is. Be back. First it was me, now it's here. him, I guess. I don't know. I see his face. Yeah, my internet's lighting up a little, little bit of um, being a little funky here. Are we good now? Uh, I mean, your face is still completely frozen, and that came in sounding more like Max Headroom. <laughs> I can hear you, yeah. <laughs> okay, okay, well, you're coming back, I think. All right, you All guys right. continue on. I'm going to leave and come back. We'll fix it in post. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Okay. Oh, we might be good now. I might not have to lose. No, you, you, yeah, you got to go. <laughs> <laughs> um, All right, well. <laughs> no. But what, one thing I was saying about, about shorts like that um, is that a trick that I've done in the past that I think can, can really work to your benefit is um, you kind of build your short around one really key effect. And you kind of use the sort of tricks of um, let their imaginations do the work by cutting away or kind of dancing around any sort of components you have leading up to it, but sort of save it all for one effect kind of near the end and then put everything into that effect. And right. if you really can pull off that one piece, people will walk away from that movie like, whoa, the practical effects were amazing in that movie because they just, it's the only thing that they remember and you kind of can get away with sort of tricking them that you've had insane effects throughout. Right, okay, that makes sense. I think that was kind of what I wanted to do actually, but I think I just 
I don't know. I think I was just like, ah. I also just didn't have enough actors for it. And I was just, I don't know. I was like, I didn't want to act in it myself. <laughs> I think <laughs> that's a good idea. <laughs> or at least for my sake, yeah. Yeah. All right, I'm back now. Can you guys hear me? Yes, yes sir. sir. Before we get too far away from it, you mentioned Dead a lot. I wanted to ask you when you saw that movie because I saw it way too young. And I still think about the dog scene and the pudding scene. And those really, those really fucked me up when I was a kid. <laughs> uh, yeah. The uh, yeah the um, the custard scene. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that, and now that I think about it, that seems that could have been. It was directed by Peter Jackson, but that could have easily been a Sam Raimi movie if you didn't know just watching it. it yeah, yeah, it is. I I saw I I luckily um, saw Evil Dead Two, and then I saw uh, Dead Alive probably five days later, and those were sort of the two the first two horror movies that I like invested in for Ernest as a sort of high school kid and it was the it was the one two punch of those two movies i think as far as evil dead 2 goes it's the audacity and the amount of like crazy lengths that sam raimi goes through to sort of pull off the sort of insanity that he's capturing on film but i actually think that brain dead or or dead alive is uh is a really sophisticated film disguised underneath sort of a pulpy popcorn aesthetic mm-hmm. so it has this amazing gore that like legitimately has not been topped to this day. Like, I don't think anybody has topped what that movie. Nothing is going to top that long over scene. I mean, nothing, nothing. No, no. And so he has like, and he had a, bu- a bit of more of a budget. I mean, Sam Raimi did. I think that was maybe a $4 million movie or something like that. Um, but this is a sophistication going on beneath the surface of that. Movie, uh, that I think you can see when you really start getting into it, the sort of thematic ideas that are working through and how he's using pulpy sort of comic book stuff to kind of comment on sort of humans and the things that we do sort of to get by. That is um, a good precursor to the movies that he ends up doing later. You can see the the filmmaker coming through uh, in a really special way. And I, I would do anything for Peter Jackson to make another horror. Please. That'd be great. I, I remember I showed somebody the Evil Dead movies and somebody's like, when they're watching Army of Darkness, they're like, oh, why did the why does the sword fight look like Lord of the Rings at the end? <laughs> <laughs> and I'm like, oh, maybe, uh, maybe there's a reason. <laughs> maybe somebody was inspired by somebody. Maybe. So you were, uh, you said a creep show in Dead Alive, but you were, were kind of scared of horror movies. What were the formative films that you grew up on? Um, I was a kid of the 80s, 90s, so, you know, Artobi. Spielberg was, yeah, I think the, the Spielberg aesthetic is the one that's, I think, really baked into my, my brain, the mo- movies like, um, I remember Back to the Future uh, being, like, a pretty huge one for me, um, <clears throat> but yeah, I, I saw Nightmare on Elm Street when I was probably five, um, and I don't think I saw that again until way, way later, um, but I, I saw, I, I remember sort of Loving action movies? I don't know. There was like this period of time. I was thinking about this today. There's this period of time where every movie that I watched seemed to be an action movie. It was like a Schwarzenegger, Stallone. Yeah, uh, the classics. Dolph Lundgren. Mm. Yeah, yeah. I, I go to the, the, the rental store and just rent like weird Dolph Lundgren movies <laughs> again and again and again. Um, I guess that was like, I guess that was probably because I, I had this like gravitation towards genre, but I couldn't take the scary stuff quite yet. So I sort of, it was all action and sci-fi. Mm. Um, but I do remember that uh, that sort of once I watched um, Evil Dead 2 and Dead Alive, it became this just like obsession where it was like at the time it was VHS. And so 
me and my friend would go to the VHS place and we'd look for the oversized boxes because the oversized VHS boxes made it, meant that they were like the video nasties or these like banned films from like different parts of the world. We would just watch like the gnarliest stuff, pretty much everything from the full moon movies to super gnarly independent movies to the classics. Um, and, uh, and then I think as I got into college, filmmakers like Terry Gilliam and Jean-Pierre Jeunet um, really started to sort of draw me towards this like very like hyper real aesthetic that I think mm-hmm. I'd always loved since uh, since I uh, I started with this with Sam Raimi and Peter Jackson so that kind of like kooky kind of larger than life vibe especially the Terry Gilliam stuff um, really became a huge influence on, on me and then I, I don't know if you've guys seen Jean-Pierre Jeunet's uh, film Delicatessen one of his first ones it's a French film about cannibals living in an apartment building so good it's like Amelie if Amelie was like I'll have to check that out. (laughs) So with the, uh, one second, my internet's popping up again. (laughs) I was hearing a lot of rumblings about this film before I even got my hands on a screener. Uh, It was uh, making splashes at uh, the Fantasia Film Festival, I believe. Mm -hmm. So you put almost a decade into this total. How how does it feel to see your hard work finally paid? Uh, It it feels, it's, it's weird. Because it's the pandemic, so it's like I, I, I'm sort of seeing it, but I'm but I'm not. I, I guess the when you make movies at this level, uh, you don't really make any money off of them, and you don't really. I guess your career could sort of explode uh, if things went right, but the real sort of light at the end of the tunnel is that you get to go to movie theaters and watch them with audiences, and and go to film festivals and and meet fans and meet other filmmakers and commiserate on how hard it was to make your movie and get drunk and. Uh, sort of release the the valve that has been sort of what making a movie can be over the course of several years. And so the pandemic happening and kind of taking the whole festival circuit out of the equation was a huge bummer. Um, I, I feel lucky that I got to screen in a couple of festivals. We screened at Fantastic Fest and uh, uh, Shivers in Germany and Toronto After Dark. But then um, we had probably 20 other festivals lined up that all got canceled. So that's a bummer. Um, and it's a real bummer for the people who made movies that didn't get to play at any festivals. I mean, the digital festivals are awesome. Fantasia was actually a huge, gave us a huge boost in sort of just not like knowledge of the movie being out there. And we got a bunch of great reviews, um, but it's just not the same, not being able to sort of watch the movies with people. Um, so it's a weird place. And I, I think a lot of, uh, a lot of us out here are worried about what the future is going to be now that, you know, everyone's kind of in, in holding pattern. And then when the holding pattern ends, if it's going to be this like brutal battle to like get a project up off the ground and, and who's going to sort of get one and who's not, and you know, it's a weird time. How um, did Shudder become involved and how did that go down? So Shudder, uh, so, so we screened, we premiered at Fantastic Fest over a year ago uh, in 2019. And um, Shudder was the first person to approach us. But they actually made, an offer on the movie, I think, before they even saw it. And then uh, after they saw it, they were the most aggressive about it. Uh, and so, and the most excited. I don't know. They were just passionate about it. Like, I don't know if you guys have worked with Shudder that much, but they're, um, it's it's a real small group of just really passionate horror people there. It's not, it's not corporate. Huh? I said, we wish we worked with Shudder. <laughs> I, I mean, they're, they're starting to, they're starting to expand. So I wouldn't be surprised if you guys ended up working with Shudder. They're, I think they're going to, this, this pandemic, as bad as it's been for a lot of people, I think has been good for the streaming services. And I think Shudder is finally kind of getting their heyday and people are kind of coming around in a, in a good way. So, you know, I remember at the time when we sold to them, um, 
I was like, oh, is Shudder the best place to, to be? Because I have Shudder, but I don't know how many, if my friends have Shudder. My grandmother certainly doesn't have Shudder. <laughs> how is she going to watch the movie? Um, but in retrospect, as we've been working with them and just seeing how cool they are, and then uh, and then sort of just the state of the world, I'm realizing that Shudder is the absolute best place that we could be. And I, I kind of anticipate as we move forward that other horror filmmakers are going to be scrambling to try to be on Shudder because... Unlike Netflix, it's, you know, a small movie on Netflix, you, unless you have sort of a huge star, it probably pops up on the Netflix page for a couple of days and then disappears into the stacks. But Shudder, like, you know, showcases you on their main page. And, and you know that the people who watch Shudder are probably going to watch your movie eventually, which is, mm-hmm. which is awesome. I mean, a million people watching the little movie that we made is kind of a, a dream come true. I'd, I'd kill to have a movie, like, you know, like basically... You will. You will. <laughs> <laughs> like my wheelhouse is probably I'm gonna want to do horror movies and fantasy movies. Like that's just my ideal <laughs> two big things. So yeah, man, combine the two and yeah, I'd, I'd like to see more horror fantasy. That'd be awesome. Yeah, that's something I've really, really been playing around with in my head um, recently, and lots of world building too. So like horror fantasy, they could spin off to other things. Yeah, you know, and, I love it. <laughs> so. Ryan, I saw that you were a Twilight Zone fan growing up in another interview of yours. Do you have any personal favorite episodes you can ring off off the top of your head? Yeah, my favorite's this uh, episode called A World of His Own, which is, um, uh, it's about, um, it's really great. I mean, it's, it's one of the awesome, I'm, I can't remember who wrote it, if it was Serling. It might have been Richard Matheson. It was Richard Matheson. Richard Matheson wrote it. And it's all set in one room, and it's basically three actors, and it's in, basically in real time. And it's about this guy who discovers that uh, he's a writer and he's he's so passionate about writing characters that they manifest like in real life. And so anything he writes on his is sort of, I actually, he dictates it. Anything he dictates into his microphone like becomes real. And then when he wants to get rid of it, he takes the tape out and he throws it in the fire and they disappear. And so his wife comes home and finds him canoodling with, a, with another woman and uh, he makes the woman disappear. And this sort of fight ensues between the wife and the husband about, um, where he's hiding his girlfriend and the husband tries to explain that he's not hiding her. She's a, a character that he's manifested. And then the wife's like, I don't believe you. And so then the husband opens up a safe and pulls out a tape that has his wife's description on it. And his wife throws it in the fire and ultimately does herself in accidentally. And it's just, uh, it's like, it's cool. It. It's, it's, it's one of the, um, one of those twilight zones that's kind of has a bit of a black comedy vibe to mm-hmm. it, which was a little bit rare, but, uh, but really special. That's a great episode. I are you familiar with the Howling Man off the top of your head? I don't know. What's that one? Uh, that's the one where the guy goes uh, finds the empty monastery in the middle of nowhere, and they in, they're housing Satan, and he ends up being being talked into letting him out. No, but I'm gonna go find that immediately. <laughs> yeah, that definitely. Awesome. I was gonna say that's my favorite episode. That's a I'm a Twilight Zone fan too. I would encourage you to watch that one. Yeah. All right, I'm actually gonna write that down because I so I had this. My dad had the like a like a subscription to the VHS sort of thing back in the day. So we had like hundreds of episodes of VHS and it was the, it was the, the, it was the closest I could get to horror as a kid because I would watch it with my dad. It was like a bonding. Everybody's fascinated with their dad. So you just want to be, do whatever he likes. So that was sort of became kind of my foundation for genre. But I just recently found out that there's so many more episodes that weren't available on the tapes that I had never seen because I just saw it only on the VHS tapes. The same with Tales from the Crypt. I think we had Tales from the Crypt, a bunch of VHS from Tales from the Crypt. Then I found out recently there was like 94 episodes of Tales from the Crypt. Insane. Wait, what? Yeah. <laughs> Isn't that insane? I'm missing some. Like, that episode I'm missing of... so many. 
<laughs> the episode of Twilight Zone you mentioned reminds me of um, this episode of Night Gallery I watched like a few years ago. The Howling Man, the, the one I mentioned? Or... No, no, the one that Ryan mentioned. Um, gotcha. It's like where these people like show up in like they like everything's like kind of black around the set. So it's kind of cool. Like everything kind of shows up from this void. Mm-hmm. And um, I forget how I've, it was years ago when I watched it. But like the the events transpire in this building and they keep changing and stuff and people disappear. And then they find out in the end they're actually in a book being written by the author. Oh, that's yeah. That is cool. Yeah. So. It's funny that's the night gallery too. It might have even that might have <laughs> been Serling taking that story and kind of doing his own thing with it. Yeah, probably. <laughs> that's true. That that reminds me a little bit of the um the scary stories to tell in the dark uh movie that they made recently. Where, Still like, haven't seen happening. It. Yeah, I haven't seen I did not hear good things about it. So you know, aesthetically it's it's real I, I was really swept up in the aesthetics. It's a really beautiful film to look at. The the problem is is that I think I mean, I don't know about you guys, but I just wanted an anthology movie. I didn't want to see yeah. them all tied together. And people seem disappointed by that. That would have been such a perfect movie to make anthology, give anthology movies a bit of a boost in the kind of public mm-hmm. consciousness, you know, at a, at a real level. It was such a shame. But Guillermo del Toro said he wouldn't do a, an anthology movie. That's so weird. Like, I, I thought it's perfect for an anthology movie. I know. So it's like, it's, like, it's just there. <laughs> like It's the perfect setup for it. Yeah. Did you ever hey, see the people. 90s? I'm sorry, go ahead. I didn't mean to. No, 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 go ahead. Do you ever see the 90s movie Urban Legend with Rebecca Gay Hart and uh, Robert Englund? That's a movie I think that could have benefited from being a anthology movie. That's what I thought it was when I got it back in the day, and it just ended up being a, you know, yeah, I absolutely one narrative. Agree. But I'm like, man, I thought this was going to be an urban legend anthology, which hasn't there, been done, I don't believe. There, there hasn't been one yet? I don't, I, I, I could be wrong, but I'm just <laughs> off the top of my head, I don't think so. I mean, there should be. It's <laughs> Fifty States of Fright is kind of an urban legend anthology show. Gotcha. Okay. Cool. That, that's sort of the, the conceit. But but you're right about uh, urban legend because I remember it's it's just one guy who's deciding to kill people in all of these really dramatic, complicated urban legend ways, which <laughs> yeah. is like such such a crazy mo. It has. <laughs> yeah, it's weird. <laughs> I like the movie, but it's just one of those things. You know, I like it because I saw it at a young age. It's not. Yeah. Good. <laughs> so you mentioned yeah. your, your new script before we got started what's up with that <laughs> um i don't know how much to talk about because i just finished the first draft of it so it's uh, it's in the early stages but it's definitely uh tonally i think it's it's close to sort of the mortuary collection but it's a, not an anthology it's one story this time um okay. and poltergeist is one of my favorite films of all time uh and i love this sort of pandora's box aspect of it where it sort of takes a very contained family in a house uh sort of idea but then really just goes batshit crazy with it so it's uh it's kind of inspired by that um but uh with uh witches instead of ghosts Ooh. Ooh. very intrigued what uh what p- time period is it taking place can you tell me that it's modern gotcha oh modern yeah yeah it has tendrils that go back to salem rich trials but it's modern. okay nice choice of words uh, the, uh, <laughs> hey i know my audience yeah one thing that i absolutely hate about most lovecraftian adaptions now i love color out of space the nick mm-hmm. kate have you seen color out of mm-hmm. space yeah, yeah yeah it's great love it and i love that story but i want a lovecraftian period piece i want color out of space in the 19th century yeah. so you're yeah. a director i'm just your audience, the, you know, your audience is our audience. Just take that, and if you ever just sleep on that idea, if you ever get cough, that. cough, hint, hint. <laughs> <laughs> well, how do you feel about Necronomicon? The anthology? Yeah, 
I've seen it a long time ago, so I really don't remember much of it. It was Wait, is that the, a period piece? I think that is. Is that a period piece? Now, now I'm wondering if it that's is Jeffrey Combs, or... right? Yeah, yeah, Jeffrey. Combs I think it is yes. period. Yeah, Lovecraft. yeah, I think it is. And really, the only other one I can think of off the top of my head is the Haunted Palace with Vincent Price, and that's uh, yeah, that's yeah, you know. I I would kill to make a Lovecraft. That's like one of the. That's definitely at the top of my list. Um, I think that Lovecraft is tricky because I feel like you have to. I think if you go too deep into the like actual lore, it starts to become too heady and kind of loses people, or at least loses me. I I'm sort yeah. of. I think I could use a little of the actual lore, but I I I, I gravitate more towards movies like The Mist that are sort of inspired mm-hmm. tangentially by Lovecraft. Um, then maybe something more specifically dealing with Cthulhu and the sort of yeah the 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 complications of, of that whole sort of mythos. Um, although I have maybe I just haven't seen it done done right. But it has to be a period piece for sure. I think um oh I've seen one that's a period piece actually. It's a silent film called Call of Cthulhu. Really? So yeah, it was on. Seen, I've heard of it. I haven't seen it myself though. Yeah, it was on Netflix like years ago, and I watched it once. Um, but I, I just had that pop into my head. I'm like, oh yeah, there's that. Ex-. You know it. Is since Lovecraft is like public domain, is it really that? Is it hard to like get one off the ground? Or like, I feel like maybe it's hard because it is public domain in a way, though, because everyone could do it. Um, I, you know what I think it is? I just think that Lovecraft is too cool for studio executives. Uh, like, un- unless you're like a cool company, like Elijah Wood's company, Spectre Vision, who's going to give uh, Richard Stanley the color out of space. I just think it's like. The lore is so is so intense that it like scares the suits. Away. So you have yeah. to find a way to like. You basically just got to put like, you know, Jeremy Renner in it or something, and then they'll they'll get it. <laughs> yeah. yeah. It's like a Conan is public domain in like two more years or something. Oh, is more? it? Really? Yeah, yeah. It's like really soon it's going to be public considered public domain. So I'm like, what's going to happen? Everybody's going to get like. Oh, I'm gonna start writing my script. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Start writing. Place <laughs> everyone. <laughs> It'll take me two years. <laughs> What's going to happen is there's going to be two Conan scripts like that are like coming out hand in hand, like uh, Dante's Peak and uh, Volcano. And, uh, oh, Volcano! Yeah. yeah, yeah. I went to see Volcano in theater, thinking it was Dante's Peak, but I was wrong. <laughs> <laughs> we were my girlfriend and I were at a friend's house today, and they were watching that. We were talking about how they just kind of blend together. Which one were they watching? Volcano. Which one has Tommy Lee Jones? That's Volcano. Okay, Dante's Peak. They were watching the Dante's other one Peak. has James Bond. I think. James, no, they yeah, were watching. They were watching Volcano. Then all right, they were watching Volcano. <laughs> like I said, they run together, man. And... <laughs> Ryan, we're not gonna keep you hostage for much longer, so I guess we'll just wrap up. Uh, you just tell people where they can find you. You got anything on the horizon? Where can they find the Mortuary uh, Collection? Yeah, well, the Mortuary Collection's on Shutter. Uh, now, if uh, you're listening to this and you don't have a shutter, that's just weird. Okay. <laughs> yeah, right? Why are you it. listening? Oh, uh, no. <laughs> I know. I know. Um, but, uh, yeah, and then I think we're going to, I think we are going to roll out to uh, a Blu-ray um, at the beginning of Ooh. 2021, and we have an insane amount of behind-the-scenes. That Part of the, the perks, I guess, of shooting for seven years is that we were shooting behind-the-scenes every step of the way, so we have uh, over two hours of um, behind the scenes footage that's uh that's like lord of the ring style it's not just like oh clips. Shit. it's like edited <laughs> together with like interviews it's it's a lot i'm that's awesome blown away by how much behind the scenes we have so if you want to know how the mortuary collection was made nuts and bolts um it's very oriented towards filmmakers uh because yeah. that's how i feel like i learned so much about movies from those lord of the rings movies it's um 
Is the Blu-ray done by Shudder? Who distributes the Blu-ray? Um, so Shudder has a deal with RLJ. Okay. Mm. Yeah. So they'll do they'll do sort of the hard media, and um, I think it may roll out onto iTunes at some point too. But I'm a little bit clear how that all works. Mm-hmm. But so, uh, as far as like finding me, I'm on all the social medias. I think Instagram and Twitter is the best place. You can just look my name up if you can find me. Uh, and I'm pretty active on there. Gotcha. Well, Ryan, we're going to get you the hell out of here, stop talking to you, cut you loose. No way, man. Uh, Wait, Justin, <laughs> you have to tell me, what's that thing? I've, I've been looking at that thing behind you on the wall. Is that a like Yeah, a it's a candle. <laughs> uh, it's a candle with a candle holder. <laughs> yeah, it's very specific. I want you to light it. You should start lighting that thing. Yeah, I was thinking that. I was like, that would be a cool thing to do. Yeah. It yeah. looks yeah. ritualistic, gonna, you know? I'm going to do that on the <laughs> head. Him, it might be. You just talk about <laughs> well, here, it. Here's what you should do. I think you should rig it so it lights remotely. So you can have a moment where you, like, think really deeply, and then it just, ping, lights. See, if I move out of the way, I don't know if you can. Oh, wow. Oh, okay. 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 So is that like a whole shrine in your corner? What's that? <laughs> is that a whole shrine in your corner? Yeah, I, I keep the chair right here for a reason. Oh yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I love Lovecraft. Let me tell you. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, if no one has anything else for Ryan, we're gonna cut this man loose. Oh, no, I'm nice. good. Huh? This is awesome. Thank you so much. It was it was really fun talking to you guys. Yeah. Thank no, you for Ryan, coming, man. We we'll super have, enjoyed it. When you get yeah. done, come back. <laughs> we'll I will. I will. I will. Absolutely. All right, man. You have a good night now. All right. Thank you. Bye-bye. Madness and magic.